Yeah, don't go away. Just go downstairs. Parents probably would not be happy with you, Karen. Well, it's been a uh, long week, it feels like. Uh, kind of been in a funk the majority of the week with the uh, news of the passing of our friend Paul. Um, it's unusual territory for me as uh, my life has been extremely easy. I've been very fortunate. This is the first time really that I've uh, had a friend pass away. So just uh, kind of been in a funky mood uh, this past week. But I'm glad to be here week in and week out. I don't know about you, but coming here, it helps me kind of mentally, emotionally, physically reset myself, and I get to refresh myself with a uh, brand new week, so I appreciate that. I appreciate you all this morning, especially. So today, uh, we are continuing our series on how to read the Bible. Um, thus far, we've done a brief overview of the Bible. We took a look at a timeline of, of the key events of the Bible. We've taken a look at some of uh, the main literary styles of the Bible. And from here on out, we're going to break down uh, each section of the Bible into a separate week. And uh, we're going to dive into a little more uh, detail to help you guys better understand what you are reading. Because again, that's our ultimate goal as we go throughout this series is to eliminate that instance where you sit down at home you open up your Bible, you spend 5, 10, 15, however long minutes reading your Bible, and at the end of it you ask, what in the world did I just read? We've all been there, we've all done that, and so throughout this series I want to help eliminate that instance as much as possible. And again, just a reminder, uh, I am a fiery guy, I'm a passionate guy, lots of energy, but this series isn't going to be that, it's more of a classroom setting. So buckle in, bear with me, I know it might not be the most exciting information in the world, but it's very important, it is well worth your time uh, to hopefully, uh, for you to better understand uh, God's word and come away uh, with an interpretation and an accurate understanding of what he is trying to tell you. Now, I'm curious, before we, we, we get too far, how many of you guys this year have set a goal uh, revolved around the idea of reading the Bible? We, have a, we got a handful of people. Yeah, that is awesome. I love to hear. I hope that as we go through this series, it motivates you and encourages you to, to dig into God's word on your own because once a week, Sunday mornings, is simply not enough. It's not satisfactory uh, to our Heavenly Father, and we need to be doing more. So this week, uh, we are talking about the law. The books of the law are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these uh, collection of five books, they, have, uh, they come with a couple of different terms or name. One is the books of the law, as we mentioned, that's be called that because a big chunk of these uh, passages is all about the law. As the Israelites, they received the law from God through Moses. You may also hear some people refer to it as the Torah. And Torah is simply the Hebrew word for, you guessed it, law. And uh, so that makes sense. And also sometimes people then refer it to as the Pentateuch. And uh, that's Greek, uh, and it comes from penta, which means five, and tukos, which is tool, vessel, or book. So we have the five books, so let's call it the five books, but in Greek fancy uh, term, Pentateuch. 
So that's uh, just to keep you aware of the different ways and how people refer to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all five of these books were written by the same person. They were all written by Moses. As we'll learn here in a minute, Moses was a very, very key figure in these five books of the law. Now, spoiler alert, we can assume uh, Moses did not write the end of Deuteronomy uh, as it narrates the death of Moses. And so for obvious reasons, uh, many scholars uh, believe that Moses uh, did not, in fact, write uh, the end of Deuteronomy, as that would be pretty tricky to write about uh, your death in the future tense. I put nothing past God and his uh, ability to inspire authors, uh, but that's why many scholars believe that Moses did not write uh, that last portion. And so since they were all written by the same guy, Moses, uh, we can all understand that they were all written around uh, the same time period as well. They were all written around 1450 B.C., so to kind of help give us an idea, Abraham was about 2,000 B.C., and Saul, David, and Solomon were about 1,000 B.C. So about halfway in between Abraham and King David was, were the writings of Moses, the, the writings of the first five books of the Bible. And these five books of the law, they were originally written for the Israelites, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, the very next book, God instructs Joshua to read the law. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God commands Joshua, he says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So there, right at the very next book of the Bible, Joshua, at the very beginning, God says, listen up, Joshua, you have got to be reading, you've got to be meditating on the book of the law. It shall not depart from your mouth. You've got to meditate on it both day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And uh, so here in just this, this little passage here, we, we can get a sense of how important these first five books of the Bible are. Typically, Christians kind of uh, approach all 66 uh, books of the Bible with equal importance you might have some that say uh, this book is maybe more important than this book. But for the most part, we all value these the, the 66 different books pretty equally. But that was not the case for the Israelites. That was not the case for the Jews. These five books of the law, they were extremely, extremely important to them. It was the pillar. It was the foundation of it all. And they treated it as such. So I really want you to understand that this is really an important part of the scriptures. I know a lot of people get bogged down with the books of the law because it contains a lot of law within the books of the law. But there's a lot of good material to be had in these first five books. 
as the Bible is not just a list of do's and don'ts. A lot of us may come away uh, with that assumption, especially people outside of the church, that's just a big manual in how to live life, but that's not the case at all. Rather, the Bible is a big epic narrative that has a plot, a storyline. We took a look at that last week, how it has a beginning, then it has the rising action, then the climax, and the falling action, and the resolution. That's the Bible. It's a big story that connects all these 66 different books together. Now, within that, within this big epic narrative, there are portions of Scripture that do have the do's and the don'ts uh, uh, of what we need to be doing. And a lot of that is found in the first five books, the books of the law. Before we dig into uh, the law, and we're going to talk about how we can apply the law to our lives today, uh, I just want to go over a, a more in-depth timeline, a sequence of events in the five books of the law. Because for me, when I went to uh, the Bible college, probably my two favorite classes were the Old and New Testament survey classes. I thought, uh, I grew up in church uh, my whole life, I thought I was a pretty smart cookie, um, but I found out I was not a pretty smart cookie uh, until I uh, got to the Bible college. I noticed there was a lot that I did not uh, no, but those are probably two of my favorite classes because it connected all of these different events. We're in Sunday school. I learned about Adam and Eve. I learned about Abraham. I learned about Moses. I learned about Daniel and the Den of Lions. But then all of a sudden, when we take a look at the timeline and the sequence of events, all of a sudden we see how this is one big epic narrative, and it's not just lots of itty bitty stories that we hear as we grow up. And so as we go through the narrative, it all starts with the creation. God created the heavens and the earth in chapter 1 of Genesis. And everything was good. God gave Adam and Eve one rule. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and leave it up to mankind and we will mess that one rule up. And that's exactly what they did. They broke that rule under uh, the influence uh, of the serpent, uh, the devil. And uh, so they partook of that. And so gone was their access to the fruit of the tree of life. And so gone was their access to eternal life. And so God gave them the boot, and God kicked Adam and Eve out of uh, the Garden of Eden. And then after Adam and Eve, we, we see a lot of gigantic events that take place in just a couple of chapters. Number one, we see the first murder in uh, the Bible as uh, Cain killed his brother Abel. We see God flooded the entire world except Noah and his family as Noah built a big ark under the direction of God. We see the Tower of Babel where the people were seeking to reach to the heavens, uh, but God wasn't having any of that. And so he spread the people throughout the world and he mixed up their languages. My personal theory as to why, uh, or as to the origin of people settling in the Americas. I've done no research uh, to validate that theory. I guess I'm lazy, but it makes sense to me. If it makes sense to you, great. I'm glad we can agree on that. Uh, but so those are all a lot of the events that take place uh, in, in just a couple of chapters. But then in chapter 12, we are introduced to a very, very important guy in the grand scheme of things. And his name is Abram, later changed to Abraham. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we read about uh, Abram in verses 1 through 4. It reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told them, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So here God is making a covenant or an agreement with Abram here. God says, if you go and leave the land that you are living in, if you leave everything that you know to the land that I'm showing you, then guess what, Abram? I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, all people, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's, that's a pretty big promise. That's a pretty big agreement that God is making with Abraham here. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And eventually through this covenant, we see that Jesus comes from this family of Abraham. And so for whatever reason, of all the people on the earth, God picked Abraham. He picked Abraham to establish a very, very special covenant with. He didn't pick Abraham because he was some uh, grand, mighty guy who had a big family and had lots of influence. But for whatever reason, God picked Abraham to establish this covenant. And through him, you become a great nation. And through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so as we go through the rest of Genesis here, uh, it's really all about Abraham's family. And so uh, this morning, uh, it's going to be three weeks in a row, we're going back uh, to the whiteboard. Uh, we're just going to uh, outline Abraham's family, and we're going to see how the covenants of Abraham descended. I'm going to try and not... Let the whiteboard fall over. Um, and we're going to see how the covenant of Abraham descends through Abraham and his family. So we learn, if we read uh, through the book of Genesis, that Abraham was married to Sarah. An interesting, interesting thing about this promise uh, that uh, God made with Abraham, that his family, that his nation would be great. Abraham was an old man, and he had zero kids. And so that was troubling news. So Sarah told Abraham, her husband, saying, Abraham, I've got this great idea. How about you go and lie with my servant, Hagar? And so that's exactly what Abraham does he, because he has a lack of faith in uh, his God. And so Abraham and Hagar, they have a son, and his name is, yeah, I heard someone uh, whisper it out there, Ishmael. So here is the first son of Abraham. We can eventually trace uh, the lineage of the Muslims through Ishmael. That's why to this day, Muslims and the Israelites struggle over the, the Canaan land, the promised land, because they trace their lineage back up to Abraham, and they say, hey, we have claim to this land as well. So the, this is where, uh, this is the lineage of the Muslims. Um, but that is not, uh, that, that's not the, the design, the plan that God had in mind. Instead, God wanted Abraham to have a child with Sarah, and uh, that's exactly what took place. And so... Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Isaac is a child of Abraham. Uh, 
Ishmael kind of seen a bit as uh, an illegitimate child because it was had with uh, Sarah's servant. And so here we see the covenant. This black line will represent uh, the covenant of Abraham. It's descended through, uh, through Abraham to Isaac there. And then as we read the story, we learn that Jacob, he has two, uh, he has two sons. They're twins, Esau and Jacob. And these guys were twins, and uh, like a lot of siblings, they didn't get along too well at times. And eventually, Esau sold his birthright and his blessing to Jacob. So instead of it going to the firstborn son again, it goes to the secondborn, this uh, covenant, this blessing to be the the father of the family of uh, Abraham. And so this covenant descends through Jacob uh, then as well. Jacob later renamed uh, to Israel. That's where we get the term the Israelites as we're talking all about the family of Jacob here. And so if we bring uh, Jacob uh, back here in the middle, Jacob, he had an interesting life uh, as Jacob was married to a lady that he did not really love named Leah. And Jacob was also married to another lady whom he loved, and her name was Rachel. And many of us may be aware that Leah and Rachel were sisters. Talk about a soap opera. I cannot imagine the drama that Jacob had to deal with. I'm sorry, Jacob. Um, And so Jacob, he had his two wives there, uh, Leah and Rachel. Um, And Leah and Rachel, uh, just like any other siblings would, uh, they got jealous of one another. And they all of a sudden, they started to have a baby-making competition. Uh, Leah had a couple at first, um, and Rachel uh, was struggling to have kids. The, The sisters, Leah and Rachel, were so desperate to have kids that just like their grandfather uh, Abraham, they encouraged their husband Jacob to go sleep with their servants. So both Leah and Rachel had Jacob sleep with their servants. And so in total between Leah and her servants, she was given one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yes, I can still count. Eight kids. And uh, Rachel, between her and uh, her servant, she had four kids. There's a couple of important uh, kids that we should be aware of. Number one on Leah's side is Levi. This is where we get the tribe uh, of the Levites, the people whom God chose for uh, his work. Over here on Rachel's side, we have Joseph. He's probably the most well-known son, as he was a son sold into slavery. Uh, but then also over here on uh, Leah's side, another important child is Judah. And Judah plays a minor role in the book of Genesis, but Judah is important because we can trace the line of Jesus through Judah here. And so there we see the continuing of this covenant that God made with Abraham as eventually all the nations would truly be blessed by this family because Jesus descended from the line of Judah. And so this really is a big part of the narrative um, in uh, the five books of the law. 
Long story short, after about 400 years after this family settled in Canaan, the Israelites were in Egypt and uh, they were enslaved by the Egyptians and uh, they wanted out, so they cried out to God. And so God freed them. He used a man named Moses as their leader. And so Moses, the author of the first five books, he led the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so Moses, he was leading the Israelites around the wilderness for 40 years. And in the midst of that wandering, God gave to the Israelites through Moses the law. This was their covenantal relationship with one another. This was the agreement on uh, the Israelite side that they need to fulfill this law so that they could be God's chosen people, his chosen nation. And that's what the law is all about. It's part of this agreement and this covenantal relationship that started with Abraham and descended through his big family, descended through Jacob and his 12 sons, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where, that's the context behind the law, God's agreement with the Israelites, part of their covenantal agreement uh, with one another. And so the rest of uh, the five books of the law, the last half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is composed mostly of law. There's some narrative uh, to be had in there as well, but it's mostly all law. There are 613 laws recorded in just those five books. And when we uh, continue through uh, the New Testament, Uh, we learn that we are freed from that law as Jesus came not to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. So my question for you all today is how are we to apply God's law, the law that he gave specifically for the Israelites thousands of years ago, and how are we today in the 21st century when we read through all of these 613 different laws, how are we to apply them to our lives? What sort of value do they have in our lives? And that's a very deep question to ask. And there are a couple of different camps, main camps of thought uh, to be had here. Uh, One main camp of thought is Reformed theology. Another is dispensationalism. And another is principalizing. And we're going to talk about each of these just very uh, briefly, and you guys then can make up your mind and how we can apply God's law to our lives today, a law in which we have been freed from. So the first main uh, line of thought here is Reformed theology. And the Reformed theologians, they take all 613 laws and they break the law down into three different sections. They break it down into the moral laws, They break it down into civil laws, and they break it down into ceremonial laws. And so as we break down each of these different laws in these different sections, we learn that the moral laws are the laws that revolve around being a good person. You know, don't murder, don't steal, uh, don't commit adultery. Those are all moral laws about being a good person. The ceremonial laws revolve around the different types of sacrifices and ritual ceremonies that uh, the Israelites had uh, to help differentiate them from the other nations. And then finally, the civil laws were the laws to help the Israelites govern themselves. Like, what in the world are we supposed to do if someone commits murder? 
they commit murder intentionally or if they commit murder unintentionally. And these are the different civil laws that help them govern themselves as a nation. And when we break down all these 613 laws into one of these three uh, different categories, Reformed theologians would say, well, the civil and ceremonial laws were specifically for the Israelites and their day and age. And so really, there's no need for us today to fulfill these different civil or ceremonial laws to now where we don't need to say, hey, we don't need to follow the rule that we can't eat bacon. That'd be a a sad rule if we had to follow, but we can eat bacon. We can uh, make clothing made out of two different uh, types of thread based off of this reformed uh, theology idea of the different laws. But now God is not changing. He, He never changes. And so these moral laws, these things that are inherently good or inherently bad, they are things that we should follow today. So even though in the Old Testament, the law that we are freed from says we shouldn't murder, guess what? We still shouldn't murder. And so that's how Reformed theologians apply the law of Moses written thousands of years ago, written to a completely different group of people and how we apply it to our lives today. On a different note, we have dispensationalism, a a big word there. Everybody say dispensationalism. Hey, pretty good. I'm impressed. Uh, This is, you guys are a lot better at words than me. I struggle with words sometimes. You've all witnessed that. Uh, But dispensationalism uh, is an approach to uh, theology where we break up uh, the Bible into different uh, eras or or, or different uh, timelines basically. And God deals with people differently in these different eras or in these different dispensations. And so in the law of Moses was for a very specific group in a very specific time, but now we are in a different era. We are in a different dispensation. So basically we can completely um, disregard the law of Moses. Not disregard it, but we aren't held to the law of Moses whatsoever. We don't have to follow it. The only laws we have to follow are the laws recorded in the New Testament. So the Old Testament says don't murder, but guess what? Jesus says the same. Jesus actually takes it a step further, and he says if you're angry with your brother, you committed murder in your heart. Or don't commit adultery in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says if you look at a woman lustfully, guess what? You've committed adultery in your heart. So that's the idea of dispensationalism. We have different eras different timelines, and so we are in a completely different era than the law of Moses. So the only laws that we would need to follow are the laws found in the New Testament. If the New Testament doesn't address it, then we don't uh, need to apply it to our lives. The final main camp is principalization. This is just an idea where we take the main principle behind uh, these different uh, laws and we apply them to our Lives. So say, for example, we uh, take the law of where people who are unintentionally, who unintentionally commit murder, they are cast into a city of refuge in the Old Testament law. Well, hey, maybe we can take the principle behind that. They're, they're still disciplined a bit. They, they are cast away from society mostly I'd say for uh, their own protection. But hey, maybe we, we, maybe we discipline people who murder people unintentionally as well. Or maybe we take uh, the law of the Sabbath, the principle behind it is we need rest. We, we need time to get away from our work, the business of the world, and to really focus in on God. And so maybe we apply that same principle in our lives and say, hey, maybe it doesn't need to be every Saturday the whole day. We, we need Sabbath rest, but maybe 
we uh, remember focuses on this idea that the Sabbath rest was made for us. And so we can find different Sabbath rests throughout our week in which we can focus in on God. So those are the three main different ways um, in which you can uh, apply the law of Moses to our uh, lives today. I don't think it needs to be all or nothing in these three uh, different camps. I don't think they are independent of one another. I think you can uh, kind of use these together. I, I, I kind of view them as dependent upon one another. Um, but those are just the three main different viewpoints of how we can apply the law of Moses to our lives today because we read about in the New Testament, we're no longer held to the law of Moses. We've been freed from that. However, there's still a lot, a lot of value to be had from the law of Moses. No matter what approach you take, whether uh, you uh, are in the Reformed theologian camp or dispensationalist camp or uh, the principalization uh, camp, there's value to be had in reading uh, these five different books of the law. It doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing approach. But all in all, when we do read these 613 uh, different laws, we have to understand that A, it was written for a completely different group of people, but B, there's still a lot that we can draw from it and apply it to our lives today. So hope, hopefully, all of uh, this information just thrown at you guys today. Hopefully that helps you better understand the first five books of the law, understanding the family of Abraham and how he plays a key role in it as God established this covenant with Abraham. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's all about Abraham and his family. It's all about the Israelites, God's chosen people. And so these first five books, it truly is the foundation of the entire Bible. And so we need to come away with an accurate understanding, an accurate interpretation of these five different books. And if you do, you are well on your way in learning how to read the Bible with understanding. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father God, I just thank you for all that you do. I thank you for these first five books of your word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Father, I just pray that we come away with an accurate understanding of your word, that we can correctly apply uh, the law of Moses to our lives today, that we can follow the example that your son has set and Father, I just thank you for this church, this body of believers. Father, I pray that we are a church that digs deep into your word on our own time, where we seek to grow closer to you day in and day out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.